Azúcar para ti, mamita. Para que lo baile suavecito. Doug Storm, welcome to Interchange. Our show today is Televising the Revolution, Cuba in Film and Fiction. Our music throughout is by Los Van Van. Formed in 1969 by Juan Formel, Los Van Van fused son, montuno, and rumba with North American rock, later incorporating funk, disco, and hip-hop as well as salsa. Formel died in 2014, but Los Van Van remained Cuba's most popular dance band. This is Azucar. Today's show is in two parts. Part one, hard-boiled Cuba. In 2016, Netflix produced Four Seasons in Havana, a miniseries based on a quartet of crime novels published in the 1990s by Leonardo Padura. It's a Cuban-Spanish co-production with original footage from Havana and Cuban actors. When is a crime fiction more than the artful deployment of genre elements? when it's set in Cuba and written by a Cuban. And part two, filming from within. The films of director Tomas Gutierrez Alia, a lifelong member of the Cuban Institute of Cinematographic Art and Industry, are hard to find in the United States. But Teton, as Alia is called, produced one of the 20th century's great films, Memories of Underdevelopment, which deals with an intellectual trying to find his place in post-revolutionary Cuba, after having lost the economic geography that formed his identity. We'll also discuss the Chaplin-esque and Kafka-esque Death of a Bureaucrat, and the 1993 film Strawberry and Chocolate, an anti-authoritarian film made by a personal friend of Fidel Castro. Joining me today is Anki Birkenmeier, Associate Professor in the Department of Spanish and Portuguese at Indiana University and director of the Center for Latin American and Caribbean Studies. She's the author of The Specter of Races, Latin American Anthropology and Literature Between the Wars, and co-editor with Esther Whitfield of Havana Beyond the Ruins, Cultural Mappings After 1989. And now, Hard-Boiled Cuba, part one of Televising the Revolution on Interchange. So I asked you here uh, as much because of the new Netflix program, miniseries program that was out in 2016, uh, based on Leonardo Padura. Is that close enough? Yes. That's right. Leonardo Mm -hmm. Padura's uh, series of novels featuring a detective, uh, Mario Conde. And uh, Netflix made four basically movies of four of those books, right? Or, yes, that's yeah, right. Yeah. Okay, so uh, let's let's just start with the books themselves, and I guess we could go into Netflix. So the author, uh, Leonardo Padura, wrote the books, born in 1955, wrote the books in the 90s, and these are detective fiction, generally genre fiction, but also descriptive of Havana 
and areas of Havana as well, right? That's right. Um, so yes, I think for the for a U.S. American audience, this is. Um, um, yeah, it's a fascinating series. Um, it's a mini series, I guess, in sort of this mm -hmm. Netflix um, format that they like to champion these days. Um, and um, what I think what's interesting for the uh, for a U.S. American audience is um, the uh, impressions that it gives of a relatively contemporary Havana. Um, so I think there, it's true that it's. A, U.S. Americans have sort of very selective perceptions of Cuba just because it has been impossible for more than 50 years for um, U.S. Americans to legally travel to Cuba, right? And so there have been only a few movies that came from Cuba or that were about Cuba. There was the Buena Vista Social Club phenomenon mm -hmm. that was in the end of the 90s, right, that gave sort of glimpses of Cuba um, and particularly of Havana. And now this series um, does something um, very similar. Um, the interesting thing about Padura, his fictions, and then now the, the series is that um, th these books were important when they were published in Cuba already. Um, and that was beginning in 1991. That's when the first book came out. Um, because that series sort of uh, presented um, a dark side of um, contemporary life in Havana. It was um, set not even in the 1990s, but in the 1980s. But um, it didn't attempt to present Cuba as sort of the socialist paradise anymore mm -hmm. that um, that um, was sort of the, the goal for many crime fictions of the 1970s or 80s. So this is not the first time that crime fiction was written about Cuba, but it was the first time that there were actual issues that were taken up, such as um, corruption in the administration um, or the fact that um, sort of the homosexual gay culture in Cuba existed despite um, all the censorship that it had experienced, um, things like that. Um, so it was that these crime fictions brought up important issues in Cuba that hadn't been mentioned before. Mm. Um, and for the U.S. American audience now, um, the interesting thing is that the filming, um, the shooting was, of course, done um, recently, mm -hmm. um, and it was done in Cuba. So it really um, represents um, contemporary Havana um, as a tourist might experience it um, if he or she goes to visit Cuba these days. Mm -hmm. um, and Padura himself said in, in an interview that um, the, um, the way in which the it's a Spanish director, right? It's a Cuban-Spanish co-production. Um, so the way in which this um, Spanish um, director um, filmed Havana, um, you know, it's a Havana that might have disappeared in 10 years from now. Mm -hmm. It is Havana in a very dilapidated state. Um, it's not the big monuments. It's not the um, renovated Havana um, that tourists often get shown first. Mm -hmm. um, it's really the actual existing Havana um, with the in the conditions that um, contemporary Cubans have to have to live with. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's that's really great. Mm. Well, um, my experience is obviously none of the books, well, they may not be obvious, but I have not read the books. They were uh, only fairly recently published in English uh, uh, from 2007. Mm -hmm. um, so there was Havana Blue, Havana Gold, Havana Red, Havana Black. So uh, the interesting thing uh, about this, though, is trying to imagine how uh, these as, uh, you know, 
template fictions in many ways, right? So if, I, if you go to Netflix and watch this, you'll say this is a, uh, a detective show. I mean, there's right. little about it that is different than mm-hmm. most detective shows. It's a pretty boilerplate detective show or crime mm-hmm. show. Uh, the difference is that it's in Cuba. Mm-hmm. What's interesting as you, as you watch, if you're trying to think in terms of, hey, I'm watching Cuba mm-hmm. rather than I'm watching this crime series, mm-hmm. Little things are said that you're like, oh, so they're not so happy about that. Or mm-hmm. you try to pick up on those things. Like the, the thing that really sort of started me thinking about this, uh, one of Condé's friends in a wheelchair mm-hmm. uh, who had been in the war in mm-hmm. Angola, I think, right? right. So he'd been uh, to Angola. And, and there's a real sense of um, um, like there's a loss there. It's, it's kind of almost a Vietnam response from mm. the group yes. where they're, they, he gave his, his legs, you know, he gave his life to a war in another country. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't get the sense that that was a failed uh, thing or a bad thing to do, but you, you do get that malaise, you know, that sense of what, why did I give my life for others in mm-hmm. that sense, right? So it's like a, just a little bit that they talk about the failure of that in, mm-hmm. in their own lives, right? What right. did it do for us? Right. Right? Mm-hmm. So there's one of the, like, all of a sudden I was like, oh. Mm-hmm. Like as I begin to prep for a show on Angola and Cuba, I have to think, what does it mean in Cuba right. to fight in Angola? Right. You know, and it, it makes sense ideologically mm-hmm. to fight in Angola. Right. And it makes sense on the world stage even. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. But what does it mean in Cuba? Yeah, I think there are very um, subtle cues in the in the series in the in the plots, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because that appears in the in right. the books themselves, also, mm-hmm. of course, mm-hmm. um, that speak to um, sort of Cuban history and the sense that um, Cubans might have of their um, status in the world. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something important to um, to to keep in mind that you know as as much as the as Castro's revolution is now. Um, you know, over with the death of Castro to begin with, um, right. with Raul Castro wanting to retire in, in about a year from now. It's the future is very much open, but there mm-hmm. is the sense that the, the, the revolution itself is quite distant. But then on the other hand, um, you do get the sense from the series that um, there are certain events that really have shaped people's um, sense of who they are, right. and the engagement in, in Angola would be one of the, mm-hmm. one of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, um, just the fact that thousands of Cuban soldiers were sent to Angola, um, it you know it is counted as sort of a successful um, operation. Um, but the the mere fact that Cuba had the ambition to take. Um, socialism elsewhere, right? Mm-hmm. And to support um, leftist causes elsewhere in right. the world and sort of that sense of Cuban independence, you know, even though they are a neighbor of the United States, um, that, that sort of independence that, you know, for, for which they really sacrificed everything mm-hmm. and um, that led them really to invest heavily in international conflicts that in principle had nothing to do with them, right? Right, right, right. No, it's, uh, it's one of those things that allows you to start thinking about the way the world is entangled. Right. right. Yeah. 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 So, uh, and I had just read um, Havana Nocturne, which is about uh-huh. uh, the mob in uh-huh. Cuba, primarily in Batista and the mob. And, yes. and so coming on the heels of that and mm-hmm. trying to say, well, this is the other side of that world, uh-huh. right? the post-Batista, right. post-mob, post-America that's right. world. Uh-huh. That's what we're seeing here, that sort of after the revolution has happened uh-huh. and the socialist heaven that you imagine right. was to come. Uh, 
is ambiguous or ambivalent. There's an ambivalence about what has happened, you know, and, and maybe it's a right. disappointment. Right. Uh, it's hard to tell. I think one of the things that you struggle with is trying to understand is socialism about everyone being level, mm-hmm. right? This, so we're, we're levelized in terms of poverty, mm-hmm. right? There's, mm-hmm. there's primarily poverty, but we share yeah. it. That's yeah. right. There's a saying in Cuba, um, before Castro, um, there were the poor and the rich, and now we're all poor, right? right? right, right um, right, so that right. was very much the sense. But that has changed, of course, mm-hmm, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Since the 1990s and now since 2014, right. even more so, right. um, social inequality has hugely um, right. increased, right? right? So, yeah, so this this is um, the world post-Castro, mm-hmm. post-revolution. You know, there is no money there mm-hmm. because obviously there's an embargo. Right. That, uh, and, and I think... Maduro says in, in an interview somewhere, you know, this is as much our responsibility as it is the U.S. responsibility. We, right. we are responsible for this as well. Right. But he, of course, he says, but there's an embargo, <laughs> too. Right. So it's one yeah. of those things where you're like, where, where, where would it have been different if we actually had been a good neighbor and they'd been allowed to be sovereign at the same time, mm-hmm. right? This is Doug Storm on Interchange. We're discussing the detective fiction of Leonardo Padura and the Netflix adaptation of the first four of his Mario Conde novels. To, to sort of stick with, I guess, stick with Conde a little bit, and um, I'll, I'll read what, what Padura himself said about Conde, and we talked a little bit about, you know, this, this era and this group of people who grew up in this, in this Cuba, right? He mm-hmm. says, uh, Mario Conde is a character that attracts disappointment, disillusionment, and melancholy, but I believe that this vision is, to a large extent, one that is held by my generation with respect to life and Cuban reality. In some ways, Mario Conde and his group of friends try to reproduce all the material and spiritual vicissitudes that my generation has experienced. As the protagonist of the series of these more or less detective novels, Conde has ceased to be a literary character and has become real. Mario Conde is not my alter ego, but he is how I wanted to interpret and reflect the reality of Cuba. Again, mm-hmm. uh, Padura, born in 1955. Mm-hmm. And so this is a good way to n- understand the sort of sense of what Cuba is to people of his age. I think so. Um, it's people who have grown up with the revolution, right? Who mm-hmm. never knew anything else. No, Batista, but, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah, who never yeah. knew anything else right. but the revolution. So they define themselves as the sort of revolutionary generation, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. um, hence that mm-hmm. sense of responsibility, also, right? I mean, it's in their, you know, it's it, it was in their in their power to um, to do whatever they could to make this into a successful. Um, uh, society and into a successful model. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I certainly think that there are aspects that um, people continue to be proud of. And I think some th- one thing that is sort of uh, implicit in uh, in this series, um, and especially in the group of friends that mm-hmm. Mario Conde has, has with him, is um, a, a colleague of mine, uh, Guillermina de Ferrari, she has called this the friendship plot, mm-hmm. um, that there's a lot of talk in, in Cuban contemporary fiction about notions of friendship and solidarity. And um, I do believe that that's something that um, if one knows people or has friends in Cuba, that is something that's, that's, um, th- that is quite prominent, mm-hmm. um, that people often don't have enough, um, but they make do with it and they share, right? Mm-hmm. Because they have no choice and there's a lot of sort of bartering, of mm-hmm. course, that's going on. Um, and sort of that emphasis on on friendship and on solidarity, mm-hmm. uh, hold, on helping each other out, um, that is something 
that exists very much, at least as an ideal, you know, mm -hmm. at least as something that people want to believe in. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that's something. There, there are other examples, of course, um, that are perhaps less um, less prominent in this series. Um, people always mention um, the, the sort of the educational system mm -hmm. in Cuba that that um, has been quite good, um, and also the health insurance mm -hmm. um, that that is also still fairly well functioning mm -hmm. as a system mm -hmm. no so so i think um in that respect as well the the series is is kind of interesting mm -hmm. i would say there's one other cultural element or culturally specific element that that padura himself also mentions mm -hmm. that is that the series itself and several of the plots they're quite sexually explicit mm -hmm. right so mm -hmm. so love and sort of eroticism mm -hmm. is has a a big place um mm -hmm. in the series and also in this um in the books. In the books, too. Okay. So I wondered, in terms of genre fiction, though, that's kind of a necessary element. In a I lot think of so, right? Yeah. It's, <laughs> yes. it's sex and violence, right? They're the yeah. Two, yeah. two elements. Yeah. Well, yes. I was going to ask about that, too. It's, uh, it's definitely a, a kind of macho uh, sexuality in the series, anyway. Mm -hmm. And Condi himself is, is a little aggressive in, mm -hmm. in his lovemaking, let's just One say that. One could say so, yes. Yes. Uh, and in a way that, that, that seemed... Um, that was apparent, you know, so you, so it's something you notice, I suppose. Like it seemed mm -hmm. like you were um, love as an attack almost, to be honest with you. Just from seeing the, the show, mm -hmm. it's, uh, you know, he comes up from behind. Mm -hmm. uh, it's on a counter. Mm -hmm. It's on a table. Mm -hmm. yeah. Nothing's in bed except for yeah. with his partner Manolo. Mm -hmm. uh, he and his, his yeah. wife are in bed usually. That's right. Uh, which, so that's a when good counter. When he receives phone calls, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. He's always interrupting. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. He's, he's interrupted. Yeah. Um, but they are in bed. So it's an interesting yeah. contrast, right? Because he is married. Uh, yeah. And Condi is yeah. not. Um, yeah. So uh, there, there is an interesting sexual element to it that is, that's. Mm, I don't know. I, I don't know how to respond to it. It just seemed so yeah, obvious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think they're a little bit uh, stereotypes, um, yeah, but they're also yeah. they really come. One could go back to the 19th century, 19th century mm -hmm. literature, um, especially Manolo and his wife. Mm -hmm. What's interesting about them as a couple is so Manolo is is white mm. I would say and his wife is um, biracial mm -hmm. in Spanish we call uh, you know that would be called a mulata mm -hmm. without being um, pejorative at all um, right. on the contrary the the mulata in in Cuba is actually it's sort of an erotic stereotype mm -hmm. um, uh, you know it's it's con uh, perceived as being someone who is a woman who is especially attractive. Well, she is only there to have sex with Manolo. And the, she's only there for that purpose, that's, yes. Yeah, so but the mulata, the that's, that's from the 19th century oh, on, okay. in 19th century novels, you have the mulata as sort of the right. sort of erotic fascination of Cuban men. Right. Um, right. And so I feel like he's he's continuing with mm. those stereotypes. Another backdrop to, to that whole theme of sexuality mm. and of sort of... Um, sex as something really transgressive, right, mm -hmm. um, would be um, 1990s um, street post prostitution, mm -hmm. right? Um, mm -hmm. Sex workers in the 1990s are, you know, in Cuba still illegal officially, but it's really something that is um, becomes very, very prominent. Mm -hmm. um, and um, and it is something that has returned from the 1950s. Now, talking, f oh, okay. talking about like, you know, the revolu revolutionary changes that occurred after mm -hmm. the revolution of 1959 was that prostitution became prohibited, right? Mm -hmm. um, and in the 1990s, with, with, with the opening up of um, Cuba to international tourism, mm -hmm. Um, and then in the 2000s um, and 2014, um, prostitution became quite common again. Mm -hmm. um, and so 
my sense is that perhaps that is also a little bit of a background to mm. sort of the importance of um, sort of, yeah, eroticism and sex mm-hmm. scenes yeah, in these a, novels. It's a, a troubling aspect of most, uh, well, I guess we, we, you just use the word tourism. I think it's generally a sex tourism. Yes, what um, happened in the 90s that just because we opened up to, uh, this kind of international tourism, you're kind of... St- it just happened, or um. so. What happened um, in the 1990s was there. So there was this economic crisis in mm-hmm. Cuba, right? Because the um, subsidies from the Soviet Union um, mm. didn't come in anymore because the Soviet yeah, Union collapsed. itself fell That's apart. Right, right, right. Um, mm. And so Fidel Castro created a set of new laws. Um, in order to respond to what he called the special period in times of peace, which was just another name for the economic crisis, <laughs> right? right? And one of these laws was that he allowed the dollar, the American dollar, to become um, a second currency that oh, okay. was, a, you know, that legally coexisted with the Cuban peso. Mm. And there were then um, stores, supermarkets. Um, there was a whole new economy that was created in Havana and other um, tourist sites that functioned in American dollars. Mm. Um, and and but what that did was that it made it attractive for Cubans living in Cuba um, who came in contact with t- uh, tourists mm-hmm. try to uh, sort of in, engage in some kind of business with them mm-hmm. because they were able to use those dollars Get to dollars, buy things sure. um, mm. and that's what okay. drew um, young women and also young men to mm-hmm. pro- uh, to prostitution. Mm. Now that's I don't, if these uh, books are set in in the pre nineties. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. Then it's before this particular right. special time. So right? that's why I'm saying it's it's sort of an indirect backdrop. Even though it, it does, it is clear that in the series nothing is going very well. They, there's no coffee. Right. There's you know, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's, in fact, Condi makes this point all the time with one of his friend's mothers, the mother who makes meals for them all the time. He says, "Where do you get all this food? You know, mm-hmm. I'm going to have to arrest you because it must be legal." <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> You're the only one that has beef around here. Right. You know? yeah. so. At that time, it was a lot of bartering, right? Yeah, that people had their connections. And, right, um, right. Uh, and that's that's how it would go. Yeah. Um, but that's an interesting um, maneuver that Padura did mm. in that way, right? Um, by setting his series in the 1980s, he was able to talk about sort of, uh, yes, economic difficulty, mm-hmm. um, but he didn't have to address the, the crisis that people were experiencing right. in the 1990s. Right. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. I'm speaking with Anki Birkenmeyer about Cuban novelist Leonardo Padura's crime fiction of the 1990s and how it shows an actually existing Cuba. Now, is there a sense, uh, again, uh, as I was trying to do a little research here, there there are ministries of, of these kinds of things. Like, So you can't necessarily publish the things that you might publish. I mean, what are the restrictions for arts mm-hmm. uh, in Cuba? Is there is there a difference in terms of what Padura can do uh, mm-hmm. with with writing than what we're going to talk with uh, Aliyah? Yeah, no. Um, what's interesting with, with Padura is that he has... I believe that he has pu- he's been able to publish all his novels in Cuba mm-hmm. as well as outside of Cuba. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a phenomenon of the 1990s. Mm. Um, until the 1990s, it was fairly restricted for Cuban writers um, 
who wanted to publish outside of Cuba. Mm -hmm. So basically, um, writers in Cuba had a large amount of liberty as to uh, the kind of writing that people were able to do that was um, fairly open, not as restricted as in the Soviet Union, for okay. example. Um, what was restricted was publishing outside mm. until the 1990s. With the economic crisis, okay. since the state just has no money anymore to right. pay its writers, um, they allow writers and filmmakers and um, musicians, mm -hmm. artists of all sorts, um, to start making their own contacts mm -hmm. and to publish outside. To be a and little to, capitalist. Yeah, to be a little <laughs> capitalist, exactly. <laughs> right. um, and right. make their living outside right. as best they can. And Padura right. was one of those people okay. who really became very quickly... Um, kind of a superstar. Then. Yeah, yeah, very successful mm -hmm. and who continues to be su successful. Mm -hmm. There was... Um, uh, Padura wasn't the only one um, in the 1990s who was quite successful. There are others like Zoe Valdez who became translated a lot into mm -hmm. English and French. Um, there's Pedro Juan Gutierrez. Um, so um, they all wrote in a style that, you know, I myself, I, I, I have called that a sort of a dirty realism, right? Mm -hmm. they, they write about contemporary Cuba um, in a sort of very realist, um, mm -hmm. uh, gritty uh, vein. Um, but Padura is, I would say, the one who has uh, sort of become most prominent and who has really continued to publish mm -hmm. um, all through the 2000. Um, and he's quite proud, yes, of being equally present and recognized in Cuba mm -hmm. and outside of Cuba. Mm. And still lives in and Cuba. And he still lives in Cuba mm -hmm. also. A lot where of Cuban I think, writers I think emigrated. I read where he grew up, in like his uh -huh. yeah, In the neighborhood in yeah. which he grew up, yeah. 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 Well, uh, the series, a uh, couple of things that were interesting to note, and, and you, you talked about one already was the, the sort of homophobia mm -hmm. that that's obviously apparent in this series. But um, again, watching it, it's one of those things that, the, the again, Conde is, is homophobic himself. And, uh -huh. and, um, yeah, that's true. But, you know, in order to fulfill his own particular duty and, you know, to do mm -hmm. the job that he has to do, he's, he's got to find the truth. And that means, you know, mm -hmm. dealing with his own problems mm -hmm. uh, with that situation. But it was, again, another thing you're like, oh, I didn't realize, mm -hmm. uh, knowing very little about Cuba, that, yeah. that this was a major no, issue. Yeah, homophobia yeah. What has been a major issue in Cuba. I think it, that actually really has to do with the revolution itself mm -hmm. um, that uh, sort of promoted uh, sort of a, uh, uh, sort of the ideal of the of the soldier, of the mm -hmm. revolutionary soldier, yeah. right? The, the guerrilla man, right. like uh, Che Guevara. Um, and that really meant that you had to be, as a man, you had to be um, heterosexual. A manly man. Yeah, yeah right. a manly man. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so yeah. in the nineteen right. in the 1960s, so relatively soon after the revolution, um, they actually started um, sort of re-education camps mm -hmm. um, for people who were identified as gay. Mm. Uh, they're the so-called UMAPs. Um, mm. And it came up again as sort of homosexuals from from then on were not able to sort of be openly gay, mm -hmm. right? Um, and it came to the forefront again in 1980 with the so-called um, Marielle emigration. Mm. Um, that was sort of a wave of emigration where um, what Castro did was, um, in that case, he allowed anybody who wanted to leave Cuba to leave, um, but he made sure to organize people to ostracize gays specifically who wanted to leave Cuba. Um, the discussion about gays only came up again in the 1990s. Mm. And I would say that came up in like one movie that was instrumental in bringing that up again was Strawberry and Chocolate mm -hmm. by Tomas Gutierrez Alea. Right. He's also called Titon, if that's Titon, if okay. that goes easier off the tongue. Uh, <laughs> um, 
And because that was a movie right. where uh, we have two um, two main protagonists, and uh, as it turns out, the the actors are are right. um, uh, appear in the Padura series as Shocking, well, right? Really, really, yeah, yeah. And it's I, kind of an insider shocking. joke, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> It's time for a break. Our music will be another by Los Vanva, La Habana Si. We've been talking about contemporary Cuban novelist Leonardo Padura and the recent Netflix production of the first four of his Mario Cande novels under the series title Four Seasons in Havana. When we return, we'll look at Cuba's most famous filmmaker, Tomas Gutierrez Alia, or Titan. Stay with us for more on the arts after revolution when Interchange returns on WFHB. La 
Welcome back. I'm Doug Storm, and this is Interchange on WFHB. Our show tonight features two well-known Cuban artists, contemporary novelist Leonardo Padura, whose fictional detective, Mario Candi, has been introduced to an even wider audience now through the Netflix miniseries Four Seasons in Havana. As it was shot on location, it gives viewers a feel for what our guest Anke Birkenmeyer terms the actually existing Havana. Now we'll turn to the films of Tomas Gutierrez Alia, also known as Titan. Specifically, we'll look at two films that speak directly from the heart of the years just after Revolution, the 1966 Death of a Bureaucrat and the 1968 film Memories of Underdevelopment, which shows up on many lists of the greatest films of the century. We'll also discuss his 1993 film Strawberry and Chocolate, nominated for an Academy Award, which confronts head-on homophobia and machismo as a byproduct of the revolution. And now, filmed from within, part two of Televising the Revolution on Interchange. Let's let's do that. We'll shift into uh, to Titon or uh-huh. uh, Alia, um, mm-hmm. uh, and because uh, again, doing this doing this uh, prepping for the the show, watching the Netflix series first, and then getting I could only really get my hands on strawberry and chocolate. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was very difficult. I couldn't find anything else really uh, mm-hmm. readily available uh-huh. uh, of Alia's work. Mm-hmm. Um, so I I got strawberry and chocolate. I actually ordered it. I bought it. Okay. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and watched it and was then very surprised to mm-hmm. see was Jorge, and you can help me with his last name as well. Perugoria. Perugoria. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh-huh. Uh, so Jorge uh, Perugoria was mm-hmm. is the is the well he becomes a star from this movie apparently yes, right. That's so, what made him famous. Uh, and that's yeah. 1993. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, is it Elias' last movie or close I to last movie? I think it's second to last. He movie. died in 96, yeah. I uh-huh. think. So yeah. Yeah, let's, before we get into strawberry and chocolate, why don't you give us a little background on his life? his career. Yeah, well, Tomás Gutiérrez Aliad. um, So some people say that he's sort of the greatest Cuban um, filmmaker, certainly Mm -hmm. the greatest sort of revolutionary Cuban filmmaker, very much identified with the Cuban revolution. He was born in 1928, I think. That's right. And he is... he was trained as a filmmaker um, in Italy, actually. So mm-hmm. he left in the 1950s um, to um, to attend a film school in Rome, um, and there became very much influenced by sort of Italian neorealism. So sort of the hand camera and mm-hmm. also uh, working with um, authentic actors, mm-hmm. untrained actors, um, things like that. He he brought back from Italy. Um, from his training there. And he returned to Cuba with the Cuban Revolution. Um, and there he helped to found um, the Cuban Film Institute. Mm-hmm. It's called ICAIC. And um, ICAIC um, um, has been responsible for a whole host of um, really excellent um, mm-hmm. Cuban films. And I've spoken before a little bit about sort of a censorship in, in, in the area of literature. Um, the ICAIC uh, was always much more open as to um, sort of um, artistic liberties that filmmakers mm. were able to take. Um, and so um, it's really a fascinating film production that mm. came out of the ICAIC. Because of the people that were involved? I mean, these I, are particular yeah. people sort of in place that, that sort of serve in these ministry mm-hmm. positions. Right. They're yeah. friends, I guess, friends of Castro's, That's right? right? Yeah. And then mm-hmm. it, depending on who that particular friend is, he may be more liberal with mm-hmm. the what you can do. That's right, yeah. Okay. It's a small society, you know, yeah, it's, yeah, a, yeah. it's an island after all. Right. And so, right. yes, so uh, yeah, I would agree. It, right. it went a little bit that way. Um, mm. Alfredo Guevara is uh, was the head of the uh, of ICAIC for a long time, and he's actually one of the few people who were 
pretty much openly gay. Um, mm. And he was able to, you know, ah, okay. live like that mm-hmm. um, as the head of Ikaik. So, you know, there are some contradictions in Cuban I society guess, like yeah. that. Mm. Um, but um, Tomás Gutiérrez Alea um, worked for Ikaik um, during all his life. Um, and, um, yeah, he published a lot of... Um, uh, uh, documentaries. He became internationally um, famous, I would say, with um, one movie that today is a is a classic. It's called Memories of Underdevelopment, which I cannot find. And you were not able I to find it. I was not able to get it. I tried okay. so hard. Uh, so, yeah. so, but I, like I said, I was able to get the one before, which is the death of a uh, of, of a bureaucrat. bureaucrat. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. one I was able it's, to find. Yeah, it's ironic sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, but it, that was a good one. I mean, I thought yeah. it was funny, and it. Um, um, it struck me that why you and this is '66 that movie uh-huh. and the one you talked uh, memories of, of underdevelopment of an, uh, that's '68. Yes, that's right. So um, I thought, well, I'll watch this one and at least it'll give mm-hmm. me some sense. Yeah. And I I did watch Strawberry and Chocolate, which again that's nearly 30 years in between these two films. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and the the death of a bureaucrat. I just thought it was fascinating. Uh-huh. I mean, it's funny. Yeah. It's a Chaplin-esque funny. It's mm-hmm. also um, uh, Kafka-esque. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, yes. it's that's what it is throughout as well. Yeah. Uh, the the main character is just trying to bury his uncle. That's And right. from uh, bureaucratic problems, he can't get the proper form signed in time. Mm-hmm. And, so, and so he has to try to get this form signed the entire time. Mm-hmm. I thought it was very funny. And yes. um but it was uh, it's one of those things that as they use terms throughout, there's a great scene in the middle where um, there's like a riot of sorts mm-hmm. um, that where, where the hearse driver is trying to uh, go into the cemetery and bury the body, which is not allowed to be buried because it's already been buried mm-hmm. and then exhumed fraudulently and so it doesn't mm-hmm. have the proper paperwork on the exhumation either so the hearse driver's like I've got a I've got the body you've got to do it and the mm-hmm. the, the cemetery uh, controller who turns out to be the bureaucrat um, mm-hmm. um, I gave that away again but it's 66 so <laughs> um, uh, uh, says you can't come in here and they start a, a fight basically but he says at the time you're not being very dialectical <laughs> that's right. right. That's, that's not. Right. That's very non-dialectical. So and so there are things like this throughout, right? right? Yes. Yeah. So this is what comes up all the time, and it does a little bit in the Padura. Yes. But um, no, and Gutierrez Alea is, is just a great storyteller, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. And yeah. then he had a knack for finding um, sort of plots that mm-hmm. are um, sort of local and universal at the same time, mm-hmm. right? That speak mm-hmm. to an audience outside oh, sure. of Cuba just as much as to yeah, um, people yeah. in Cuba. Right. And bureaucracy, yes, um, came to be a problem of the socialist It was funny, there's a, Chinese, well. a Chinese character right at the, at the end of that riot that says mm-hmm. that, would, that would never have happened in China. Aha, uh-huh. yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. We're discussing the films of Tomas Gutierrez Alia or Titan, Cuba's greatest filmmaker. Tell a little bit about that uh, that the movie that he's primarily known for uh, that I again I couldn't get a hold of. So tell us a little Strawberry, bit about it. Yeah. Story no, no, I, I did see that. One. Oh, so memories of fun. Yeah, real quick. Yeah, okay, yeah. well, that is a is a movie that is more about the revolution, I would mm-hmm. say, and it's about uh, a man who is uh, sort of uh, comes out of a great bourgeois family um, who owns a furniture business, mm-hmm. um, and all his family leaves, and that's. That's how the movie actually starts. Um, Sergio, the, is that his name? I Sergio, think. Sergio, exactly. Okay. Uh-huh. So he's coming from the uh, the pre-revolution Batista era, where the, uh-huh. you can gather up 
Yes. Cash. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Right. So they have this furniture business. They own several buildings. Very capitalist um, society. I think. Very capitalist. Or yes. corrupt, if you want to use that at the same time. Yeah. Right? Even yeah. though not in his case, they're no, just he, yeah, you know they're yeah, just a right, rich family, right, right, um, right. upper upper um, mm-hmm. uh, Cuban upper class. Um, and so the movie starts with um, his family and actually his wife um, leaving Cuba, which was during the first two years um, still possible, and people um, left in troves, right? Mm-hmm. As we know. Um, and so they leave, but he says he he wants to stay. He wants to see what's happening in he Cuba. Wants to watch the revolution. Yes. Watch what happens. Exactly. Right and so what what happens in the movie is that um, he watches the revolution unfold, um, and he himself sinks into meaninglessness. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is the portrait of a man who who observes um, and who has sort of this uh, masochistic takes this masochistic pleasure in. Mm-hmm losing everything that he had built his identity on um, and, yeah, sort of um, um, losing his the, sort of the meaning of his life. Mm-hmm. Um, he always had sort of the pretension to become a writer and he's not able to write either. Um, he has it's another uh, connection through to the Padura as well. The, right. You know, the, the, uh-huh. the so always the attempt to write mm-hmm. and writing as an ideal mm-hmm. that you don't get to. You don't right. quite get to it, right? right. Um, and so, yeah, and so that's what, what happens mm-hmm. with this man. And I think I don't want to give away too yeah, much. Yeah, it's sure. It's a movie that is um, fairly... Experimental, you know, it's it's a little bit influenced, I would say, by the by the French um, uh, new cinema. François Truffaut um, has sort of a, a bit of a collage technique, mm-hmm. um, and it's just beautifully shot. And the portrait of this man is is really quite mm. quite striking. Interesting. Um, but perhaps if if I may continue with sure, uh, uh, with strawberry and chocolate, yes, a, a delightful movie, um, yeah. which is a delightful yeah. movie and yeah. which is a really funny movie mm-hmm. actually. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Memories of Underdevelopment is not really funny, mm-hmm. but <laughs> okay. a strawberry and chocolate. I think in his late Very phase, funny, yeah. um, Gutierrez Alea really became uh, yeah a great fan of. Uh, Sort of uh, portraying Cuba with a with a distanced and uh, humorous eye, mm-hmm. um, and so with with strawberry and chocolate we have the uh, the meeting between a young student who is an ardor um, a, a fervent revolutionary yeah, right a doctrinaire student yeah, yeah. Uh, absolute doctrinaire mm-hmm. and he meets um, David is his name. David, David, that's right. Thank you. Yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, he meets this man who's openly gay, right? Diego, um, Diego mm-hmm. uh, and who's played by um, Jorge Perugorria. Much younger Jorge. From yeah, him, yeah, and certainly not a machista yeah. Jorge, Jorge, right? Okay. Yeah, um, he's a beautiful man too. Right, yeah, right. Yeah. Um, that's right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they start to talk, and um, they um, and um, Diego begins to introduce him to literature and mm-hmm. to great Cuban literature that um, David didn't know at all. That you couldn't get. It seemed like that it was yes, like that was not really visible. Like, yeah, yeah. Exactly, mm-hmm. um, that was that had been silenced, which is true for mm-hmm. the 1970s, early early 80s. Um, some writers just weren't mentioned at all mm-hmm. anymore, right? Um, and so, um, so that's how this friendship then um, mm-hmm. starts up and um, evolves into a beautiful um, friendship and really makes um, David reconsider his yeah. um, his former um, convictions. And it seems that for Diego. There is not that much left in Cuba at that point. Um, and Diego has as his only hope to leave Cuba mm-hmm. um, at some point. But I guess what's um, what uh, th- two things that I thought were interesting about that, um, about that movie. Um, one is, um, again, it was one of the first movies that showed Havana in a very dilapidated state mm-hmm. um, to an international audience um, and to a Cuban audience. Mm-hmm. It, made, it really made people aware of, you know, where the city was um, in the 1980s and 19, uh, early 1990s mm-hmm. and that 
something, you know, some things just weren't weren't be hadn't been seen literally mm-hmm. and hadn't been heard. Um and so so it was it was eye opening in that in that respect. Um but also sort of the connection between Cuban literature and sort of the fascination with um a very rich um tradition of Cuban literature and homosexuality. So mm-hmm. the fact that Diego is homosexual and um And he names several other Right, homosexual um, authors that, yeah. and and I think mm-hmm. that was important. Um, mm-hmm. So Diego mentions as one of his heroes um, Jose Lezama Lima, mm-hmm. who um, was a really important um, and very influential um, literary figure in the nine from the nineteen thirties on mm-hmm. up until the nineteen seventies uh, when he became okay. really silenced. Um, gotcha. But before that, in the nineteen sixties, he was quite influential in in the sort of Cuban literary bureaucracy, and he published important novels. Now, is there a, then a parallel to that um, Padura ca- uh, character that they talk to in in the, yes. in the third one, Havana Red, where That's right. that person has been exiled in a sense in his own? That's right. Yeah, okay. That's right. Um, that's, is that so there are, to be a stand-in uh, yeah. Okay. Um, Lesama Lima was mm-hmm. was certainly a towering figure mm-hmm. um, during the Cuban Revolution um, and before. Okay. Um, there are several others. There's Virgilio Pinera, um, mm-hmm. who the same thing um, became really silenced in the mm-hmm. 1970s. Um, okay. And um, there is another one, Severo Sarduy, and some people think that the the character in in Mascaras in Havana Red is based on Severo Sarduy, who oh, okay. actually went into exile um, in Paris, um, mm. and who uh, who wrote his novels there. Um, oh. So, so yes, there are several possible models, but mm-hmm. that's that's why I'm why I'm saying sort of you. the connection sure. between Cuban literature and um, um, sort of the, the gay identity of of several outstanding Cuban writers mm. of the of the late 20th century is quite prominent um, mm-hmm. and. Uh, is highlighted in mm. strawberry and chocolate, and that was quite uh, quite unusual um, mm. at the time. Mm. Well, it is a it, it is an interesting film, also because you again you talk you, they use those terms you know dialectical materialist mm-hmm. uh, yes. um, and uh, you are you are you a revolutionary you know are you a true revolutionary or not? Uh, mm-hmm. uh, there is a sense that people are listening to you. Uh, that's part that's of right. the, that's right. That's the neighbor. No, that's yeah, the it's the, um, the vigilant. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's right. From the CDR, which is the Comités de Defensa de la Revolución that were founded at the very beginning of the revolution, yeah. where sort of in, in every block, um, in every city block in Havana, you had somebody who was watching out you had for... The, neighbor, the neighborhood watch person. That's right, uh-huh. that's right. And they were watching out for... Not watching for crime, but watching for ideological... De- 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 deviation. Deviation, thank you. Deviation, that's right. right. And, and the, that movie very much more directly talks about um, the Cuban revolution, mm-hmm. the ideals that it represented, mm-hmm. and where people stand in the 1990s, right? Yeah. Uh, much more directly so than Padura does. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it seems that way. With and it's interesting too, coming from from within the ministry, mm-hmm. you know, from within that ikaic. The ikaic, yeah, 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 from within it. But know. it is. Um, I think that's it's what you said before. Um, Gutierrez Alea knew Fidel Castro, and mm-hmm. Castro really appreciated um, Gutierrez Alea's work. Art, and it screen, seems yeah. that um, not so much with this movie, but with the very last movie mm-hmm. um, uh, by Titon, uh, which is called Guantanamera, mm-hmm. like the song mm-hmm. uh, Guantanamera, um, uh, that it was actually Castro who stepped in to say, no, the movie has to be screened. Um, I don't want this movie to be censored. Wow. Um, and so, mm-hmm. um, yes, Cuba being a small society where right. people know each other, um, these things are you know, right. uh, were very much possible. Mm. 
This is Doug Storm on Interchange. I'm speaking with Anki Birkenmeyer, director of Indiana University's Center for Latin America and Caribbean Studies, about Strawberry and Chocolate, perhaps the most seen film of Cuba's greatest filmmaker. I do wish I was able to speak more knowledgeably on, on some of the literature here, obviously, but uh, I'm, I am interested in, in maybe we could come back and talk about Padura's later work as well. I, I did just get The Man mm-hmm. Who Loved Dogs. We're doing shows on Russia here as well. It's mm-hmm. interesting. Padura says I, there was nothing on Trotsky. In, uh-huh. in in his library, you know, he couldn't find information on Trotsky. He had to get uh-huh. it, get it from outside of Cuba. So that's right. Yeah. yeah, and that, despite the fact that the assassin, the acknowledged assassin of um, of Trotsky, right. uh, spent the last years of his life in Cuba. Mercader, right? Mercader, right? yeah, Ramon Mercader, Mercader is his okay. name. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So this, so many things are fascinating about it, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah no, that's a it's a fascinating plot. Um, <laughs> so what's what's interesting about these last novels that. Um, that Padura has written, and mm-hmm. yeah, the one that I perhaps most recommend is The Man Who Loved Dogs. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, what's interesting is about uh, about them is that he, yeah, he tries to, Padura tries to rescue historical figures that mm-hmm. are often associated with Cuba, but people are not really aware of that connection. Mm-hmm. Um, so another one is, um, another novel like that is, it's called Ereches in Spanish, mm-hmm. and I've just seen that it's about to um, be published in English as well as um, Heretics. Mm-hmm. And that's about a Cuban poet, uh, mm-hmm. a Cuban romantic poet of the 19th century, Jose Maria Heredia is mm-hmm. his name. And um, he spent the majority of his life actually in Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what um, what Padura does um, with that novel is he sort of rewrites um, the biography, the so-called lost biography of mm. Jose Maria Heredia. Um, mm. So Padura likes to do these um, sort of revealing plots, mm-hmm. right? He likes to pick figures um, that are uh, perhaps they're known but not precisely for their connection with Cuba. Um, and then he construes some kind of um, detective-esque um, plot around right. them. Um, Way to drive you through it. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so they are historical novels, I would call mm-hmm. them, um, but they still have something, some, some of the impetus of the mm-hmm. detective fiction um, that, that Padura started out with. Um, and I think I have to admit that is part of what makes them so, you know, readable. Sure. It, it's sort of, um, yeah, 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 it's yeah. it's just fun to read them. Um, and I do have to say, he's um, he's taken a lot of um, care in in the details, mm-hmm. right? So the man who loved do- uh, dogs really does, uh, really he really has read up on the existing literature mm-hmm. about Ramon Mercader, which was, mm-hmm. you know, kind of a mysterious um, man for a long time, mm-hmm. and um, he really has studied all the relevant sources for that. So it is, yeah, I'm looking It is to interesting it. for that mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, is there? Uh, can we can we talk at all uh, before we close up here uh, about uh, kind of propaganda and art? It's a big part of Strawberry and Chocolate. Is this idea that there is uh, a proper kind of art, or you know, that that will speak to the revolution or speak to mm-hmm. proper training, and that mm-hmm. uh, uh, Diego is always trying to instruct David mm-hmm. that that's not what art is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, I mean, you get a sense for that yeah. within this culture that uh, obviously has, for whatever reasons, has to have particular rules you know it, it's mm-hmm. like hard to, like i would not i would not be able to at all say anything critical about the culture simply because i have no idea about it right mm-hmm. but also because you try to understand how do you stand against the um uh the actual situation of the, right. of the country at the time you know the country in revolution and the country trying to make some kind of alliance or detente with either giant power right. uh, that won't let you do anything right 
right? Yeah. So how do you how do you keep your sovereignty, or you know, right. how do you maintain that cohesiveness? How do you sustain yourself in a right. sense? So it's yeah. like trying to understand all these ideas about propaganda and art, and and right. uh, you know, this the, the and not wanting to say, well, that's wrong, right? Right? From my Western perspective, or my commercial perspective, or capitalist perspective, or decadent perspective, or whatever, you know. So mm-hmm. where where is where do you think these two? Obviously, the you know, art is is champion in, in strawberry and, and chocolate. I don't know where Padura comes down necessarily in these terms, but he does seem to be right. saying similar things, I suppose. Or Right. Yeah, I mean, I I don't think that he directly he defends yeah, the he really socialist state or the revolution. I mean, the mode um, in his novels, and that comes across also in the Netflix series, is, is really nostalgia, right? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's yeah. nostalgia yeah. for lost ideals, for mm-hmm. the lost ideals of the of the revolution. Why, why were um, they lost? Do you have a, do you have a sense? I mean, is there? I didn't get a sense for trying to diagnose it necessarily, right? Uh, mm-hmm. But like you say, this what what happened. What happened to us, right? What mm-hmm. happened to yeah. this glorious thing we fought for? Right. Um, I think what one often he- hears um, also in Cuba is that, you know, the ideals were great, but it was just economically not viable, economically, right? Yeah, um, yeah, and work. then perhaps also the sense that, um, you know, before the Cuban Revolution, yes, there was a lot of uh, sort of U.S. American influence, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but then after the revolution, um, that influence was traded in for Soviet influence, right? right um, sure. So, So it's not... It's not like Cuba mm. ever became entirely independent. Um, yeah. So, and then even in the 1990s, when the Soviet support fell away, um, the next partner that they found was uh, Venezuela. Right. No? So, right. um, but I don't think that actually Padura really speaks to that mm. so much. I think it's more the ideals that the st- revolution started out with mm-hmm. um, and the economic. Um, Difficulties mm-hmm. and the sort of um, the the feeling that there's no way out, um, mm-hmm. and that a lot of people are just leaving because they have lost hope mm-hmm. that anything is going to improve um, in Cuba in the long term, mm-hmm. right? Um, right? So, so I think that sense does come across, um, and there there is a certain I think patriotism that he still mm. th- th- that is still noticeable in this group of friends um, right. oh, sure. who the one thing that they insist on is that they never want to leave Cuba mm-hmm. right so mm-hmm. so that is something that that remains fairly clear with the men who love dogs some people have also criticized that you know he you know, he claims to reveal certain details about this um, Cuban assassin, and he makes him into an, a sort of um, into a fascinating figure, really. Um, but he prefers not to dwell on certain things, for example, um, on the fact um, that, you know, the, the Cuban government must have negotiated somehow with um, the Soviet uh, government mm-hmm. um, to give... Um, uh, to let this man live um, in Cuba for so many years, who was a convicted assassin, right? right. Um, so, so the negotiations between the Cuban government and the Soviet government um, mm. that were instrumental um, in the life story of Raman Mercader are never really um, no. discussed. Mm. No, so uh, things like that. Um, Padura is, you know, is is a man who's quite proud of, you know, uh, having stayed in Cuba all his life, mm-hmm. um, and so there are certain. Um, viewpoints that do come across in his fiction. Hmm. Well, thanks very much. (laughs) Yes, I hope you've um, gained a taste for um, Cuban film and Cuban fiction. Um, Padura is certainly worth reading, and there's actually much more.
That's our show. Thanks to Anke Birkenmeyer for her insights into Cuban literature and film. We'll close with one more from Los Vanva. This is Yege Yege, off the 1974 album Gatefold. Next time on Interchange, Wells Before Glass, a special 90-minute interchange focusing on Orson Welles in his less appreciated role as an innovator in the World War II era radio feature, a genre of radio mixing fact and drama that is a largely forgotten and unacknowledged forerunner of the radio documentary as we know it now. Michelle Helms joins us to discuss what the radio feature was, why it arose, and what its role was in World War II, and how it relates to Wells' signature style and concerns. We'll feature selections from Wells' Hello Americans and Ceiling Unlimited, programs which were official, government-sponsored propaganda. Wells Before Glass, on the next Interchange, Tuesdays at 5.30 on WFHB. I'm Doug Storm. Thanks for listening. I produce Interchange. Rob Schooner's assistant producer and editor, Jennifer Brooks' board engineer and executive producer is Joe Crawford. Stay tuned for Counterspin, followed by the Jazz Menagerie, coming up next right here on your community radio station, WFHB.